Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is our podcast extension for ROI Show 547. Our guest today is Christopher Booker, Assistant Professor of Practice, Internship Coordinator, Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And we're going to be talking about stare decisis, U.S. versus Ozawa and U.S. versus Thind. Our history buffs today are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Terry, start us off. Okay. Chris, when you were talking about uh, U.S. versus Thind case in 1923, you mentioned that Thind's argument um, did not hold water because the courts believed it didn't meet a common sense definition of white. And of course, we know race is, is a social construct, and yet we continue to talk about races. Um, mm. So my question with that is, so how did the eugenics movement at that time in the U.S. influence the court's decision? Well, um, that period of U.S. history is uh, definitely influenced by a, a school of thought that is sometimes referred to as scientific racism. Mm -hmm. uh, the researchers at the time were looking at uh, skin color and other various uh, physical racial differences to establish the superiority of white people over non-white people. Um, and, and there was, there was never going to be any other po outcome possibly considered other than, uh, white people were superior to non-white people. That was the goal that they were trying to establish using the tools of science. Um, and, and, you know, people of color in that day were, uh, uh, lived in, in squalor, lived in difficult conditions, uh, they were experiencing diseases, and all of these factors were used to justify the superiority of the white race. Um, uh, so, you know, and then you look at certain individuals who seem to seem to uh, uh, counteract that view, like, like Jesse Owens and his amazing performance at the Olympics in, in Munich, um, where he, where he established, uh, even though he was a, uh, a black athlete that, you know, he was physically stronger and faster than the European athletes. And instead of people looking at that and going, huh, maybe white people are not superior in all aspects to non-white people. What they said was they just come up, came up with a plausible sounding explanation uh, that Jesse Owens was closer to the primitive, that it wasn't all that long ago that uh, blacks, black people were uh, running for their lives, uh, were, were chasing prey, you know, living in these very primitive conditions. And so, of course, they evolved to be faster and stronger. So, you know, there was no way they were going to let Jesse Owens or Mr. Singh or Mr. Thind or anybody... Um, contradict the established views of the day because they were using science to get to a particular finish point when science, you never know where the science is going to take you. Um, and certainly the more modern views uh, of, of race reflect that uh, because the answer to bad science is better science, right? Right. Rick. Chris, the, um, since the two cases hinged on uh, stare decisis 
precedence on what is white, what is whiteness. Uh, what in common law, you read the cases, no doubt, what in what did they use coming out of common law to uh, 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 create this this uh, construct of whiteness that would deny these two gentlemen citizenship? Well, it, it has been a while since I've read those cases. Um, I'm, I don't remember them referencing any particular prior cases. Uh, they just made an appeal to the science and the Ozawa case, and then they made an appeal to what the average person, average man, considered to be white in the thin case. Um, I, I, you know, if I went back and looked at the cases uh, more closely, um, they might have they might have mentioned something, but uh, but that just I don't remember that as standing out. What what stands out to me most is the just the uh, flying in the face of precedent, uh, comparing these two cases that were only three months apart. Yeah, you're correct because they did not they did not reference any common law. It was the, the science of the day that they used as the basis for the denial, which uh, uh, was let me just say an editorial comment wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. A hundred percent wrong. So, so Chris, we know that when court decisions are made, they often become precedents. Did these two cases become precedents that were used in similar cases moving forward? Well, uh, these two cases certainly sent messages to the lower courts, uh, and, and any lower courts that took up these immigration cases would certainly have been swayed by uh, these cases, but um, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with any uh, immigration cases after these two. It's really, it, it's, it's not really my particular uh, field of study, so I'm, I'm probably not as well versed on these as I, as I could be, um, uh, because I'm, uh, I'm using these cases to teach uh, an intro-level class. Most of my colleagues in my department are, are much more uh, well-versed on um, issues of, of precedent and that sort of thing. Okay, Terry. So, Chris, you talk about the concept of st- stereodicysis, that it makes the court more reliable, predictable, efficient, it gives them legitimacy. And so you use right. these uh, cases for your students to become better critical thinkers. So I'm curious, what do they come away with? What do they, what is the discussion like in, in the room when you talk about these two cases? Um, the, uh, uh, the discussion is fairly, fairly limited. There are a few students who I can I can tell uh, looking at it um, are uh, find these cases interesting uh, because uh, University of Texas at San Antonio is a Hispanic serving institution. Uh, so many of my students are, um, uh, are interested in issues of, of race and how their own individual lives uh, might be affected by racial categories. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, my students are still, you know, they're incorporating this, this knowledge um, and they're getting exposed to uh, concepts at the college level that 
uh, many of them were were not at all uh, versed in at the high school level that they came from. So uh, they don't seem to be particularly shocked, but at the same time, I don't get any pushback uh, from students um, in terms of defending these decisions either, uh, uh, which is good because there's, there's really not a defense for them. Um, but we, uh, and, you know, and, and these days, you know, I think this is a, an artifact of coming out of, of the pandemic. Um, I used to have more active discussions, and then we went into the pandemic, and we went to all online learning, and, and there wasn't as much opportunity for, you know, really spirited discussion in those online formats. And I think we're still coming back from uh, the pandemic, and, you know, discussion in, in my classes tends to be a, uh, a little more muted. It, as, as hard as I try to involve them, and uh, and present things to them that I hope will will kind of shock them a little bit um, and and have that stimulate discussion. Uh, I'm I'm often dissatisfied with the the level of discussion that we have. Uh, I, I try to get more participation from my students, but uh, it's it's not at the levels I hope it to be yet. Right, Rick. Yeah, Chris. Um, uh, every law. Uh, every Supreme Court decision, there's usually commenta- commentation, uh, comments that are that are uh, uh, generated uh, after the decisions are made. Do you know of any commentary that uh, re- uh, came about as a result of these two cases? Uh, I'm unaware of how these decisions were. Um, received by the public. I'm thinking there probably was not a lot of controversy about these cases because most of the white people in the United States at the time would probably have uh, felt that these were the right decisions for the Supreme Court to make, despite the fact that uh, the precedent established in one was completely contradicted by the other. Uh, most people in 1922 probably didn't pay much attention to these cases because it didn't affect them uh, and it didn't really matter to them one, uh, as long as the, uh, the white people's club was preserved. If, if they had gone the other way, they might have been much more controversial. Chris, you talked about using these cases as learning tools and opportunities for your students. Are there other, what other kinds of cases do you use to, to promote critical thinking? Because I think that's a wonderful uh, mission uh, to have for every class, um, the idea of, of getting, their, their, you know, getting students to think a little bit more critically um, and to be a little bit more analytical. Can you give us just some highlights of the other kinds of things that you use as examples? Sure. Um, I, I also, I was a juvenile probation officer for a long time. So I uh, teach our juvenile justice class as well. And one of the cases that we look at in the juvenile system is in Ray Galt. Uh, Gerald Galt was 15 and already on probation for a property offense. Um, he was detained. He and a friend of his made a obscene phone call to an adult neighbor. And I apologize in advance for using this kind of language on your radio show, 
please feel free to uh, bleep as much as necessary. But let me tell you what Gerald Galt said to his neighbor. He called her up and he asked her, and again, I apologize in advance, are your cherries ripe today? And do you have big bombers? Can you imagine the uh, <laughs> scandalous nature of those comments? Um, but Gerald, uh, it was never established that Gerald actually made these comments. It may have been his, his friend. Um, the, the victim of these phone calls never showed up in court, so he did not have the right to cross-examine his accusers. If he had been an adult, the maximum penalty would have been a $50 fine or two months in jail. Well, Galt was 15, and the uh, juvenile court in Arizona committed him to an Arizona training school, uh, which is what they call, at the time, what they called hardware secure facilities for children, so basically prison for kids, for the period of his minority which uh, has in some cases been interpreted as when he turns 18. In other cases, it's been interpreted as when he turns 21. So he's looking at anywhere from three to six years uh, for making obscene phone calls. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, and uh, the court concluded. Now, this is the Warren Court which is widely regarded as one of those activist courts that we hear so much about anytime a new Supreme Court justice is being nominated. Um, But the court said that uh, juvenile court history has again demonstrated that unbridled discretion, however benevolently motivated, is frequently a poor substitute for principle and procedure, which to me seems to be a very conservative principle, right? If you believe in limited government, and I'm not sure that conservatives today uh, still believe in limited uh, government, but, you know, if you look at uh, a speech like, uh, like Ronald Reagan made at his nomination, he said the scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, what the Supreme Court is saying in Galt is unbridled discretion, however benevolently motivated, is a poor substitute for principle and procedure. Essentially, the same concept is being presented in both uh, in both cases that government when when government can do whatever it wants to, even when it says I'm here to help, it often oversteps its bounds and infringes on people's liberty. So, you know, that's a ruling out of the Warren court that's perhaps not as liberal a ruling as as sometimes people would make the Warren court out to be. All right. We would like to thank our guest for this 547th show, Christopher Booker, assistant professor of practice, internship coordinator in criminology and criminal justice at the University of Texas, San Antonio. We have been talking about stare decisis, U.S. versus Ozawa and U.S. versus Thind. Our history buffs today were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. 
If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.